You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. We are continuing our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're talking about what it means to be blessed by God. And uh, today we're going to, today and next week, we're going to be looking at the wonderful uh, doctrinal truth that we have been adopted into the family of God. And so uh, I'm going to read our passage, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. It actually, the last two words in verse 4 should go with verse 5. And so I'll start there. It says, This in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's uh, look to him for guidance. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We pray that you would be present here, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us um, the truths of your word. I pray that if there is anyone here today that does not know you, Lord, that they would not leave this place without giving their life to you, understanding who you are as a father and what it means to be your child. I pray that you would do this for your sake. Um, and we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a true story uh, told about uh, a little boy by the name of uh, Lee. Uh, in a succession of bad events, uh, he had lost his father. Uh, he was separated from his brothers. Uh, he found himself on a train, an orphan train from uh, New York to Texas. And uh, now he was in a new home uh, with, these, uh, uh, with this couple, uh, this uh, a couple that had brought them into their home. He had um, been kicked out of two previous foster homes. And so the first night that he was in this new home, as he was sitting there with dinner with this couple, he was already thinking about how he was going to run away, how and when he was going to run away. And so the next day when he got up for breakfast, there was a big uh, meal of biscuits and gravy. And he sat down to breakfast and he went to grab one. And, and the woman, Mrs. Nailing, uh, she stopped him and he was thinking, oh goodness, now what have I done wrong? And she said, before we eat, we, we pray, we say grace. And so she proceeded to pray and uh, she prayed to God as, as father. And uh, she prayed, as she continued to pray, uh, he noticed, like he, he had heard the Our Father talked about by uh, different pastors that would come into the orphanage and, and stuff like that. But this woman prayed as if the Father was actually in the room with them. And she also prayed that the Father would guide her and her husband as they raised their son as, and the privilege of raising uh, the son. And he just paused and he's thinking, wait, is she talking about me? Is she, is she referring to me as her son and a privilege? Does she really mean that? And he was so uh, struck by that, that when she was done praying and uh, Mr. Nailing said, dig in, he didn't even hear because he was just thinking about that. And, and his world started to shift and then after breakfast, uh, the, the intention was for them to go to the barber shop in, in town, which was a, a mile or so walk into town. And they were in no hurry because as they were going, the first house that they came by, they stopped and they introduced Lee as their new son. 
And then they did it at the second house and the third house. And every stop along the way, they introduced him as their new son. And he started to think that maybe there was another option. Maybe the anger and the bitterness and, and running away was not the option, but maybe he would stay. And maybe he thought, maybe I've just found two new fathers, a physical one there and a heavenly father. And he was adopted into that family. When we hear stories like that, they're very moving. And the reason that they're moving is because family is so important. I don't know if you've ever watched those uh, YouTube videos where you have a child who has been in and out of uh, foster care homes. And then the parents, the, the, their current home that they're in, uh, the parents are revealing to them in, in a special way that their, no, their days of shifting from house to house from home to home, from foster parents to foster parents, are coming to an end. They've come to an end because this house that they're in right now will be their home. This couple will be their mom and dad, that they are full-fledged members of this family. That's what we're going to be talking about today and next week. We're going to be talking about the wonderful teaching of adoption. But before we do that, before we dive into our verses today, I want to do a little bit of a recap uh, for the sake of those who may not have been with us uh, all along, those who may not have, um, uh, this might be your first time visiting today, um, or, you know, for those who may not have been listening as, as much as they should be listening. I just want to do a little recap um, of what we've been talking about. And it started in the beginning uh, of this wonderful book of Ephesians where it talked about blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we said is we said that God, the Father, is inherently worthy of praise and he's inherently worthy of praise for who he is and because of what he has done for us. And what he has done for us is listed in verses 4 to 14 and then in, in the rest of uh, chapters 2 and 3. It talks about all that God has done for us. And because of that, he is inherently worthy of praise. These uh, blessings that God has given us, we have this general statement of what God has done for us uh, where it says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is the general overarching statement. And then he gets into the specifics of that in verses 4 to 14, talking about what those blessings are. And what we saw two weeks ago is we saw that the very first blessing that God has blessed us with is that we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him that we should be holy and blameless before him. And this is really the foundation for everything else. You cannot even be considered to be in the family of God unless you are perfect. You cannot be considered. The Bible is very clear that God is so holy. He is too holy to look upon any kind of sin whatsoever. And since we're all sinners, we are not fit for being in his family. We can't, we can't even be in his presence, let alone his family, unless we're perfect. And so the very first thing that he did for us is that he made us fit to be in his family by making us holy and blameless before him, which is a wonderful truth. I like to watch a, a show uh, called Forensic Files. Um, and it's a crime uh, show. Uh, what's so funny? Um, so 
It's a crime show where uh, these, uh, these criminals, mostly are, of which are, are murderers, they've, they've killed someone or attempted to kill someone, uh, and then through forensic work, through DNA and through fingerprints and uh, tire tracks and all sorts of stuff, these people are uh, hunted down and brought to justice. And I was watching one the other day, and it was about this guy who was uh, in a Lutheran church and very active, and uh, he had a family, and he, he killed his entire family. He killed his three children, his wife, and his mother. And they lived in a rural area, and so before they were discovered, before their bodies were discovered, it had, a month had gone by, and he was already out of the state and beginning a new life. Uh, in another state. Uh, he uh, got a new social security number and he was, uh, uh, and he started a new family. And he did that for 30 years. 30 years, the case went cold um, and he was established in a new job and in a new family. And then through amazing forensic work, um, this man, and, and through an appearance on America's Most Wanted, this man was identified in another state he was arrested, he was tried, he was convicted, and then he was put in jail. He was torn from his new family. Even though he had not done any, any crimes in the last 30 years, he was ripped from this new family because there were legal demands from the law which were not met, yet met. He had to be accountable for what he had done before. Satan, who is known in the Bible as the accuser of the brothers, is constantly bringing accusations against us. He is constantly yelling and reminding us of how sinful we are, constantly uh, reminding us that we do not meet the legal demands of the perfect law of God, but in fact that we have violated them hundreds of thousands of times. And he loves to stand up and accuse us and say, you are guilty. Jason is guilty. And the truth of the matter is that he can scream that as much as he wants. It is no longer true. It is no longer true because the legal demands of the perfect law of God have been met in Jesus for me. He, Jesus, has taken my guilt. Yes, I still sin, but all of my sins, past, present, and future, were punished on Jesus, on the cross. And now I'm declared to be righteous in the eyes of God. I want to look at just a few verses that speak to this reality. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans is in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Um, <clears throat> we're going to start uh, in verse 1, but as you're turning there, I'm going to read two other passages uh, that are not in Romans. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake he, that's the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, you and I, sinners, have become the righteousness of God. Because of what Jesus has done for us, living the perfect life that we were required to do but couldn't, and by being punished for every sin that we would ever commit, we are now righteous in the eyes of God. The other passage before we get to Romans chapter 8 uh, brings in this kind of forensic courtroom situation as we'll see in Romans 8 as well. And it's 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And here's what it says. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Two words that I just want to clarify really quickly. The first is advocate. An advocate simply uh, is a, if you want to think about it in this terms, is a lawyer. Someone who pleads our case, someone who is on our side pleading our case. Jesus is that advocate for us in the courtroom situation. And then the other word is that, uh, that big theological term, propitiation. And propitiation means satisfaction. It means that Jesus was the one that satisfied the demands of the law. Jesus was the one who satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus is the one who took the wrath of God. And so God is no longer angry at us because of what Jesus has done. Jesus took the full wrath of God on himself. This brings us to Romans chapter 8, where we see this all come together and leads into our discussion on adoption. Because God's wrath has been satisfied in Jesus, Romans 8, 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more condemnation. You are no longer guilty. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can this be? Why? Well, turn back uh, to Romans chapter 5, just very quickly, and then we'll come back to Romans 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God. God is no longer angry with us. In Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being poured out. It's no longer being poured out on us because it was poured out on his son, Jesus. Therefore, we are at peace with God. I was, doing, I was uh, listening to a preacher this past week, and he was talking about uh, Scottish law a couple hundred years ago. And he said that in Scottish law, every execution that ever took place of a prisoner uh, was done at 8 a.m. in the morning. And on that morning after the execution, there would be a, a, a sign posted either on the jail or somewhere in the town that would say something to the effect of this. Uh, this morning at 8 a.m., on August 1st, 1602, Alistair Ferguson was justified. He was justified. That means that the legal demands of the law no longer had claim on him. He had paid the price. He had paid the price. Now he paid it with his life, but the same is true with us as well. The legal demands of the perfect law of God have no claim on us because they have been met in Jesus. He died. And we saw last week that when he died, since we are in Christ, we died with him. And when he rose to new life, we rose up with him as well. I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And this is even more clear. Um, Beginning in verse 31, we have this courtroom language. Listen to it as we go. Paul starts off by saying this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me stop there for a second. These things that he's referring to are actually found in verses 29 and 30. And here's what these things are. For whom, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And because of all this, because of all that God has done in calling us, in predestining us, in, in justifying us, in glorifying us, no one can stand against us. Absolutely no one can stand against us. He goes on in verse 32 to explain exactly what he means. He says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then listen to this in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will stand up in the courtroom and file formal charges against God's elect? And the implied answer is that nobody can do that because God is the one who justifies. God is the one who condemns. And Jesus, his son, was already condemned for us. Therefore, there are no more charges against us. And we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. And not only this, but I love that last verse that says that Jesus is now interceding for us, which means he continues to plead our case, which means the sins that you committed this morning before you came here, the sins that you may be committing now, the sins that you may commit later today and the rest of the week, every single one of those, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father pleading your case, saying, I've already paid for that sin. I've already paid for that sin. He is interceding for you and me. And now, since God has satisfied the legal demands against us, he can welcome us into his family. I was thinking about adoption this past week as I was preparing, and there's a process for adoption. Okay, there's a process that a family has to go through in order to adopt a child. My sister uh, adopted, her and her husband adopted a little girl from India uh, over 20 years ago. And the very first step in that adoption process is that they had to choose the child. They saw a profile. They, they heard about this little girl there in India, and they chose her. The second thing that they had to do is they had to fly over to India and fill out a ton of paperwork and stand before some judges, the court system in India. They had to take care of the legal demands of bringing this little girl into their family. And so after they had chosen her and after they did all the necessary paperwork and the court hearings, they were then able to welcome her into their family. And she was both legally and relationally theirs. And I believe that this process is seen in part in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Once again, let me read it again. In love, he, the Father, predestined us to adop uh, for adoption to himself. He predestined us to adoption. That means that he chose us. He, using the, the same language I used earlier, he looked at our profile and he chose us to be his child, his, his child. He, uh, before he was able to, uh, uh, before 
he filled out the paperwork, if you will, or before he stood before the courts of heaven, if you will, he chose us. He picked me out and said, Jason Doring will be my child. And it says that he chose us before the foundation of the world, before time began. But why? Why did he choose me? Well, verse 5 and 6 tell us, and it says this, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He chose us because he wanted to. He chose us because it, it, to use our terms, it made him happy. And he knew that his grace would be magnified. There's no other explanation that the Bible gives than that. There's no indication in the Bible that God looks into our future and sees something in us, something desirable in us uh, that he does not see in other people and then chooses us based on what he saw in us. In fact, I want you to turn just briefly uh, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, if you're in 8, just one chapter over. And this is a really, if you've ever read this, this is a really, really difficult passage that we're not going to get into um, right now by any stretch of the imagination. But in, in this passage, God is speaking of, of his choosing of Jacob over Esau. And Jacob and Esau were twins, all right, born from the same mother in the same time in the same place. And God chose Jacob and God rejected Esau. And the question is, why did he do that? And so Paul in Romans 9, 10 says this, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. There's no explanation given. There's no like, well, Jacob was going to turn out to be a better guy. No, he, he's clear. Paul is clear to say that they hadn't done anything good or bad. So that God's election is not based on what he sees in us. It's based on his own good pleasure. Main, namely speaking, it's no one knows. No one knows. The reasons why God chose us belong only to him. He alone knows. However, the benefits for being his children are clearly laid out in the Bible. And so that's what I want to begin to look at for the rest of the time we have today and then into our time uh, tomorrow. Uh, being a son or daughter of God comes with many, many benefits. And I really want you to listen. I really want you to hear this because these, if you are in the family of God, this is, these apply to you, okay? The first, the first benefit of being in the family of God is provision, provision. And this is a given, right? Any good parent, uh, any parent who loves their child to any extent is going to provide for their child. They're going to provide for their physical needs, the, the, the food and the, the shelter and the clothing. They're going to provide for those things. They're also going to seek to, uh, uh, to provide for the emotional needs of their children as well through conversations and talking and how are you feeling? Why are you crying? You know, they're, they're going to seek to provide for the emotional needs of their children. And then they're also going to seek to provide for the spiritual needs of their children, okay? Uh, a Christian parent is going, to, is going to seek to instruct their kids in the Word of God. Well, God does the same for us. The Old Testament is filled with examples of God providing for his, his people. He provided a land for them to live in. 
He provided uh, crops and herds for them to eat and to be able to work. He provided relationships with them for their comfort, uh, for uh, their joy, and for, for companionship. He provided all these things. And then he provided a sacrificial system so that their sins could be forgiven and so that they could have access to God. God provided all of these things. In Psalm 37, 25, the psalmist says this, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And then in the New Testament, we have the wonderful promises of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, this is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount a couple of verses before uh, verse 31 of, of chapter 6, we have the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus in there urges his followers to address the God of this universe with the intimate term of Father. When you pray, pray, Our Father who art in heaven. So he urges them to pray using the term Father. And then in verse 31, this is what Jesus says, going along with that Father motif. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need. He knows your physical needs, and he will provide them. Philippians 4, 19, Paul says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God knows what you need. God wants you to be in this mission, and he will take care of the rest. In addition to our physical needs, I believe that God also provides for our spiritual needs. He does this in a number of ways through family, or our emotional needs through family and through friends and, and through the counsel of his word. He meets our emotional needs. And then finally, God provides for our spiritual needs as well. The entire New Testament is about God providing for our, our spiritual needs. So we can't look at every verse. I want to just look at two passages. The first I'm going to ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, to see how God has provided. The biggest thing that separates us from God is sin. The only thing that separates us from God is, is sin. Um, even the slightest sin is enough to separate us from God. We cannot have access to God, and I, as I said before earlier, and let alone be in his family if there's still sin. And so what did God do for this? What provision did he provide? Verse uh, 13 of Colossians 2 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The legal demands against you are no more because God has satisfied them. God has forgiven our sins, all of them, and he nailed them to the cross. The other one is Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 13. If you can turn there, um, this is a, a wonderful verse. Jesus talking about his, the, the relationship that the Father has with the, his people. And he says this in Luke eleven, thirteen: If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> you are sinful and evil, and you know how to give good gifts to your children. Your Heavenly Father, who is infinitely more wise than you and is perfect, how will he not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God has provided forgiveness for our sins and the guidance of his Holy Spirit. Our Father provides for his children. Another benefit of being in the family of God is that of protection. Protection. Um, I know that I've shared this story before, but um, uh, when we adopted Jayla, um, I remember she was starting to walk at around uh, a little after, uh, before she turned one, and her and I would go to the mall and we play in those playgrounds, you know, with all the padded, you know, uh, bridges and stuff like that. And uh, I remember sitting on a bench and just walking, watching her just walk around and she's stumbling, you know, and she looked like she'd fall and then she would catch herself and she's just looking at all the colors and everything and, and just loving it. And she's walking and this one kid is about three or four years old, just stood right in front of her and she came right up to him and just stopped. And he pushed her down, like right in front of me. And I'm telling you what, like I was honestly ready as a third, in my 30s, ready to get up and go after a three-year-old, right? Like pick him up and say, what are you doing, right? Why? Because that's the instinct of a father. This is my daughter. Don't you do that? That's what God has given us, that instinct as a parent to protect our children and God protects his children. This is what he does for us. The Bible is filled with stories of God's protection for his people. If we were to look in the Old Testament, we could see, you know, stories like Daniel in the lion's den where he's thrown into the lion's den and God protects him. The lions never come near him. Or his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are thrown into the fiery furnace and God protects them from the flames or, or a ton of other stories that we could look at. But one of my favorites, I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, this is one of my favorites because of what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, the situation is that the people of Israel, God's people had been in cruel slavery to the Egyptians for hundreds of years, and it was just getting worse and worse. Um, and so God raises up this deliverer by the name of Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful uh, king in the known world at this time. And I got a message for him as my people are in his land. And so <clears throat> here's what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh. Listen to this. Listen to this familial language. He says this, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Did you hear that? <laughs> this is the God of this universe saying, you're messing with my son right now and you better stop. And if you don't, if you continue your bullying of my son, the consequences are going to be more than you can handle. And we know that Pharaoh did not listen. We know that Pharaoh continued to bully God's firstborn son. And so God killed Pharaoh's firstborn son. You don't 
mess with God's children. God protects his children. Well, that's just one example of many in the Old Testament. There's so many that we could have talked about. In the New Testament, I will say this, although we do see examples of physical protection for the people of God, the greater emphasis in the New Testament is on the spiritual protection of God's people on their souls. In fact, you look at Jesus when he's talking to his disciples and, you know, he's instructing them and then it's getting towards the end of his ministry and he's going to leave. And he says this, yeah, I'm going to leave and you're going to be persecuted and some of you are going to be killed, right? I mean, it's almost like the physical protection is out, uh, out the window there. And he's like, you know, you're going to be killed. And then, and the truth of the matter is that, you know, no one can physically touch a child of God unless God has granted permission. And what God is saying is this, is they may kill your body, but they can't touch your soul. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And God, and Jesus was saying, you're protected. I am protecting you from these things. You may lose your physical life, and that is by my design, and you will come into my presence, and you will hear those wonderful words, well done, my good and faithful servant. But the protection in the New Testament is more of a spiritual nature. Just let me give you one verse. There's many, once again, John chapter 10, if you want to turn there. John chapter 10 uh, is one example of the spiritual protection that we have. Listen to this. This is a great verse. Remember this when you feel the attacks of the enemy. Remember that when it just, it, it just feels like uh, you're just being attacked spiritually so much and you're wondering if you can hold on at all. Jesus speaking in John chapter 10 verse 27, he says this, my sheep, uh, that's a metaphor he's referring to people, actually people and, and using a shepherd metaphor. He says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. You see in this verse that double protection, it's, I mean, it would be enough for Jesus to hold on to us. Who could get through Jesus' hand? And then, but Jesus says, nope, my Father, you're also in my Father's hand. There's that double protection of the Father and the Son for his children. We are protected. We are protected. Um, because of that. We have that double protection. Well, there are many other ways that we could talk about how God protects us, but I want to move on to the third benefit of being a child of God, uh, a son or daughter of God, and that is discipline. Yes, discipline is an advantage. It is a benefit of being a child of God. Now, normally, we don't think of discipline as a benefit, right? Um, as you were growing up, and if you have kids now, you know, you, when you're growing up, you're not like, yes, I'm going to get spanked for this, and I love it. Yes, I'm going to be grounded again. Yes, thank you so much, mom and dad. I appreciate the love that you're showing. No, you don't do that because discipline is never a, a, a fun process at all. But it is a very necessary process, and it's done by loving parents, and it's done by loving God. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, it's in the New Testament. It's towards the end uh, of the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and this is the Word of God talking about the importance of discipline. And he compares it to um, the physical discipline that a father might give to his child. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, he says this, 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all participate, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The writer of Hebrews is basically saying that discipline is painful, right? It's painful, but it is good for us. So how does God discipline us? How does God discipline us? Well, a discipline from God can come in a number of ways. There can be what's known as formative discipline uh, to where it's not involving that you did anything wrong. It's just God saying, this is what you should do. If you want to please me, then this is what you do. That's formative discipline, your, your, your instruction. Like this is the right way. These are the rules of the house. But then it also comes in corrective discipline as well. And corrective discipline can come in the form of a sermon right? A sermon as God is speaking through the person that is preaching to you, that God is correcting you. My, uh, the sermon that I preached last week, I had several people come up to me afterwards and say, whoa, why'd you have to call me out on all my sins, right? Why did you have to do that, you know? And it was because I didn't know their situation. It was the Holy Spirit speaking and saying, hey, he's talking to you right now. I'm the one talking to you. You need to listen because this is how you're living and this is not good. This brings a, this, this hinders your usefulness for me. This hinders your ability to hear me. And so God can do that through a sermon. He can also do it in a, in a smaller way through a friend that comes up to you and says, hey, you've been gossiping and the Bible says that that's wrong. You need to stop. Or, hey, I see that you're very materialistic. You need to stop. That's corrective discipline coming from another child of God to you. Discipline can also come in a physical form as well. I knew of a, of a young lady who had a, a beautiful singing voice, a beautiful singing voice, and, and people were always asking her to sing, and it became a source of pride for her. And then as this pride was welling up in her, she developed vocal polyps to where she lost her voice and she could not sing anymore. And she saw that as the discipline of God. Now, God later restored her voice and she was able to sing again. But it was God saying, hey, slow down. Any ability, any gifts that you have are, are given to you be, uh, by me. Don't think that you're better than anyone else. God can discipline us in a, in a physical way. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to make sure that we distinguish uh, between being punished for our sins and being disciplined when we do wrong. Discipline is meant to bring us back on the right path in a loving way. Whereas punishment is meant to make you pay for something wrong that you did. All right? Um, punishment, you think about it this way. Punishment's intent is on justice, whereas discipline's intent is on love. 
When someone is punished, it's just like, you need to pay for what you've done. Discipline is saying, man, I don't want you to go down that path. That's why I'm correcting you right now. That's why I'm bringing this into your life. Okay, so he disciplines us. Another benefit that we're going to talk about, uh, well, uh, one more benefit that I'd like to mention today uh, is the benefit of an inheritance. Being in the family of God, we are entitled to an inheritance, but we're going to save that discussion uh, for a couple weeks from now when we get into verses 11 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, where he talks more fully about that inheritance. So as we close, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you an important question, and that question is this. Are you in the family of God? Are you in the family of God? Are you a son or daughter of God? If not, then this is what you need to know, okay? If you are not, then none of the benefits that we talked about today apply to you. You do not have the provision of a loving father caring for your physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. You do not have the protection of a loving father either, watching over your soul. And you do not have the discipline of a loving father lovingly correcting you when you go wrong so that you don't go down the path that leads to pain in your life. None of those benefits apply to you. But you know that they can apply to you. You know that you can be in the family of God, that God is calling you to be in his family. And the way that you do that is simply by believing in Jesus. Believing that Jesus is who he says he was and is. Believing that Jesus lived the perfect life that you are required to do but could not. And then believing that Jesus was punished by the Father for every sin that you ever committed. And that when you put your faith in Jesus, his perfect life is given to you and your sinful life was given to him and it was dealt with 2,000 years ago on the cross. If you do that, then you are welcomed into the family of God as a full-fledged member, a full-fledged son or daughter, not a half, but a full-fledged son or daughter with all of the benefits, including the inheritance that is coming to you. Let me ask another question for those who are in the family of God already. Do you really understand what it means to be a son or daughter of God? Do you really understand the full implications of what it means to be a son or a daughter of God? And I know that you're going to be like, yeah, I know that the Bible says that God is my father and that I'm his child. But do you really understand what that means? And are you living in a way that reflects that? Next week, we're going to explore the implications of what it means to be in the family of God um, and to see if we are really living as if we are sons and daughters of God. Let me uh, let you know where we're going with this. This is what, uh, this is like kind of a teaser for next week. The default mode of the human heart is to fall or to slip into a performance type relationship before God. That's what the default mode, the default mode is this. God will love me. God will welcome me into his family. God will accept me if I do this. If I stop lusting, then God will welcome me into his family. If I stop being materialistic, then God will welcome me into his family. If I care for the poor, then God will welcome me into his family. And that's the default mode because we're looking for that love. We want to be accepted and we think that that's how we get that acceptance. And the Bible is clear that no, no, no. 
You are accepted because of what Jesus has done. And now your obedience to the Father is not so that you can gain his approval. You obey because you already have his approval. And you want to please the one who has done so much for you. So that's where we're going to be going uh, next week. And we're going to be asking the question, are you living like a son or daughter? Or are you living like an orphan? Um, in uh, this world. And so, like I said, that's a teaser for next week. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll have our, our closing songs. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this wonderful teaching that we are adopted into the family of God, that we are accepted fully, full-fledged sons and daughters of God Most High. We get to bear the name of Jesus. We get to lose our identity in him. We have been crucified with him and we have been raised up and seated with him. And we thank you for that. And just as he receives an inheritance, we also will receive an inheritance one day. We thank you for this truth and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.